Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, uh, Amplebland, Roan County. Good morning to you. I hear you uh, shout when we actually mention you, Roan County. So I expect it, just like Mark Hoffman got it last week. Big shouts right now. Uh, down in Bearden, good morning to you as well. And here we go in live. You ready? Yeah. All right. You're not. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Exodus 15, that's where we're going to be. If you'd asked me uh, five years ago who's on the $10 bill, I couldn't have told you. If you had said it's Alexander Hamilton, I would have told you who is that. And then in 2020, Disney released the Broadway musical Hamilton because I didn't get to go to New York and ever see a musical, but I got to watch it on Disney Plus in the midst of a pandemic. And it was amazing. I love it. I love it. I talk about it all the time. Why? I love it. And now I know stuff about Alexander Hamilton that I never would have known before. I know that Alexander Hamilton is the $10 founding father without a father. How do I know that? Because it's a lyric in a song. I know he's on the $10 bill because I heard a song, not because I carry cash, because I don't. (laughs) And here's the question. If you've seen this musical, you should be asking this question. You can Google it later to find out. Is it true? Is that musical true? Did that stuff really happen in Alexander Hamilton's life? And the answer to that is, it's mostly true. It's true-ish. There's, there's instances where, where the author of the musical had to, had to take a literary license. You, you can only put so many characters in a Broadway musical. And, and so there's characters who do things in the show that they didn't do in real life because you can only have so many characters, but they portray real events. And then somewhere along the, the line, the, the, the guy who wrote the musical forgot that the Schuyler sisters actually have brothers. And so there's a whole song about uh, Angelica Houston, as Angelica Schuyler as the only one who can carry on her father's line when in fact there were a bunch of brothers who could have done that. And Lin-Manuel Miranda said, I forgot. <laughs> I write that, but I forgot that that was true. But, but overall, the, the, the musical is true. It, it tells the life story, but it does it through song. It does it through Poetry, that's really what music is. That's really what lyrics are. And when it comes to lyrics in songs, author of songs get literary license. They, they, get, they get to be figurative in the words that they use. And you're like, what's that have to do with the Bible? Everything. When it comes to reading biblical poetry, the Bible poets get literary license. That doesn't mean it's not true. It just means they get to use figurative language. Why? Because it's poetry. It's poetry. And we come across that here in Exodus chapter 15 as the children of Israel sing this song in between their exit uh, out of Egypt into the wilderness as, as they begin this journey towards a relationship with the God of the Bible. Now, We've been talking all through this series about having a supernatural worldview. If we're going to have a biblical worldview, it requires that we have a supernatural worldview. And a biblical worldview begins with wanting to know God and what he says. If we don't want to know God or we don't want to know what God says, we will never have a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview, often you'll get it portrayed this way. And I believe people who 
who portray it this way are incorrect. There's a whole movement out there of people. They make video series about a biblical worldview that's about Christian beliefs. And I believe having a Christian belief system and a biblical worldview are two different things. I'm not saying one is more important than the other. I'm just saying that that we want to build our belief system on how we see the world, the lens through which we view the world, not through a belief system, but through the scriptures. And that means we often, we're going to do a whole series talking about tearing down what we think we believe and building it back up with the truth through the book of Exodus. And we're doing that here in in this series as we're coming across, because most of us would go, yeah, yeah, the Bible's a supernatural book. But then we don't live like that's true. Well, those events happen in the Bible. In fact, even in our culture, there's a way to describe it. There's something that happened that's of biblical proportion. What do we mean? It's, It's a massive event. It's a supernatural event. But that stuff doesn't happen in real life because we're conditioned for the normal. We're conditioned to see the world as the natural world. As we walk away from this weekend, it's so important as, as we transition in Exodus, the next series, we're going to finish the book of Exodus in, in a six-week series as we look at the, the rest of this book in a big picture kind of way. It's so important that we would hold on to this truth, to know God, to know the supernatural God of the Bible. We worship him for his supernatural salvation or we forget. Two options. It's like a pendulum. A pendulum can only go one of two directions. It's either swinging in one direction or it's swinging in the other direction. And I don't have any proof. This is just through experience that I would say that is the Christian life. We are either moving towards Jesus or we are moving away. There's no static. There's no neutral. There's no just hanging out in the middle. If we think we're neutral, if we think we're just hanging out in the middle, we're actually moving away. And that means to move towards Jesus, it is a clear, conscious choice. It requires intentionality. Remembering in worship requires an active engagement. And when we stop actively engaging, we're just drifting in the other way. Forgetting takes no effort. Remembering requires investment. And to know God, we worship him for his supernatural salvation or we forget. So we're going to pick up here in chapter 15. I want to tell you, there's so much here. I mean, just like there has been through the whole book of Exodus, but here in this passage in particular, there's so much here. We don't have time to cover it all. I'm sorry. It's amazing. Dig in, dig in. Hopefully you've been digging in along the way, but I want to start with this important reminder. And many of you may know this already, but it's just important that we would uh, have a frame of reference. The first five books of the Bible were not written in real time. There wasn't somebody who was recording the events as they happened and just like, okay, well, I'm in Genesis and recording the events and now in the Exodus recording the events and, and now we're in the wilderness recording the events. They are recorded after the events have occurred in order that the people of God would remember who God is and what he has done. 
That should be obvious to us, but in case it's not, it's really important that we would understand that. And the author of Exodus, for some reason, has chosen right here to insert this song. And this is one of those instances where people who want to argue against the Bible would use this chapter in particular to argue that this was later inserted by a Bible editor, that it couldn't have happened in the moment this way. They inserted it because the events that are described in chapter 15 are way in the future. They're they're hundreds of years in the future. It's not just, oh, that's going to happen. No, it's going to happen way in the future. And so you could get somebody and go, okay, well, well, is the Bible true? Because how could that have happened? How could they have known that when that was going to happen? And so we have one of two choices. This song is either both a song of what God has done and a prophecy of what God will do, or it's, it's written way later on and been inserted. Either way, it's in God's word. We, you could have both views and still ascribe the power to this song that is there. It is a powerful song. I just happened to go with, it's a prophecy. That's my view. And so here we go. In chapter 15, so the the children of Israel, they've just come out uh, of Egypt. and, And chapter 14 ends with this. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And all God's people said, amen. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea poetic license. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This weekend, as we think about worship, I want you to think about what what is it What is worship? As we talk about remembering and worshiping God for his supernatural salvation, what are we actually talking about? And so remembering, celebrating, and telling God's story is worship. Which part of that? All of it. So often we reduce worship to the the songs that we sing on a weekend. We sing some songs. And if if we get real honest, uh, many of us view it as the warm-up act. I went to a concert this week, and there was a warm-up act. I couldn't hear, understand a, a single lyric that dude was singing. It was all muffled, and it sounded terrible. And I couldn't wait for that guy to get off the stage. I was there for the real thing. I wanted the real act. And many of us approach church that way. Like, well, the, the music parts, that's just the warm-up for the important part, which is the talking part. And that's not the important part. It's all the important part. And I want to go further. It's not just the songs that we sing and the message that we, that we learn and we allow the Holy Spirit to communicate to us and, and what God is saying to us personally and collectively. It's also as we walk out that door and Monday morning comes and we live it out. Do you know what that's called when you do the live it out? It's a daily discipleship guide. We could also call it a daily worship guide. That's worship. When I actively engage my mind around what God is saying to me and I respond in obedience, that's called worship. 
And so we don't ask you to do the live it out just because that's a, a good thing to do. It's a way to remember, celebrate, and tell God's story. You could refer to it as homework. We're going to see today, what's it homework for? The only reason to do homework is to pass the test. Just think about it. Students will tell you this is true. If, if there's not a test coming, I'm not doing the homework. There's 0% chance that I'm doing the homework if there's not a test. Why do teachers give tests? To see if you've done the homework. Students, let me in on a little secret. They give you a test to see if you've been doing the homework. You have to do the work to build the foundation so that when the test comes, you pass the test. That's what we're going to see here in this song. So as we use this word celebrating in this song, it says that this is my God and I will praise him. If you have a Bible, circle that and put a little equals and put celebrate. So often praise is just, uh, I think, in our mind. We can become so conditioned to that word that praise is just like, yeah, 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 God's awesome. Okay, I move about my day. But, but it's more intentional than that. It's, it's an intentional act to celebrate who God is, what God has done, and what God is going to do in the future. When it comes to celebrating people, we give thought to it. When it comes to a first birthday, if you've had kids, you know, mom and dad, this is a big deal. Johnny's turning one and we're throwing a party and you think it through and you put great intention in it. And then two, you do it again. By the time you're five, you're over it. And by the time you're a teenager, you're just like, let's move on and get out of the house. But man, we put great intentionality into remembering and celebrating people. That's what we're talking about, that, that there's great intentionality in our worship to remember, to, to celebrate and tell God's story. To celebrate means that we would go, oh, what is it that God has done? What is it that God is doing? And, and then what do we do? We remember, celebrate, and tell who God is. That's the first thing in this song. We see that, that Yahweh, the Lord, he's the victor. He's strength. He's the reason the children of Israel have to sing a song. He's the reason that we have to sing a song. This is our spiritual heritage. If you've seen anything through this book, I, I hope that you walk away going, this story is the story of my spiritual heritage. It's not an irrelevant event that happened in history. It's a powerful event of the supernatural God of the Bible who becomes a man in the New Testament who saves me who saved the children of Israel, calling them through the baptism waters of the Reed Sea to emerge on the other side as a new creation, that they would be his people for his purposes. That's my story. And it's linked to God's story in the Exodus. Then there's this interesting phrase. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Now, it, you, if you have a different translation, they may use Yahweh as a warrior. And, and the reason that Bible translators use that word warrior is, is it gives the idea of what he's doing. And actually, some Bible translators get really nervous, especially if you get an English translation of a Jewish Bible. They're going to use warrior because they don't, do not like Yahweh being referred to as a man in the Old Testament. 
But the translation is exactly, he's a man of war. That's just what it is. And what we see is this theme actually moves throughout all of Scripture. That, that this is the, the, who David writes in Psalm 24 when he says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the divine warrior. And then we see that this role is taken up by Jesus in the New Testament. As we come to Revelation chapter 19, where it says, Then I saw, in verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The God who delivered the children of Israel by, by bringing acts of judgment upon the Egyptians and even more specifically on the gods of the Egyptians, delivering his people, is the God who becomes a man in the New Testament, who delivers judgment upon the sin of the world and salvation to those who believe. He is the divine warrior who will then return in order to deliver his people as we celebrate together forever as a resurrected people on a resurrected earth with the resurrected Jesus. That's a story worth telling. We pick up in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. By now, when you see that phrase, the right hand, that should start bringing up, okay, wait, I've seen this over and over and over again in Exodus. And now as you read other places in Scripture, when you see the hand of God, the right hand of God, you're linking it back. You're supposed to link it back and go, Oh, that's the God of power, the supernatural God of the Exodus. When, when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, this is what we're supposed to remember. He's the God of power. Is that a literal right hand? Doesn't matter, okay? It's the place of power. We're supposed to draw those links why? Because he's the God of power, and he's demonstrated that in this event through delivering the children of Israel. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It confuses them like stubble. There's another word. As we're reading the Bible and we're paying attention, we come across this word stubble in the Exodus story. Where have we heard this word stubble before? And we go back, we're like, oh yeah, that's when they were making bricks. And they took away the hay and they made them come up with just stubble to make their bricks. And they, they became uh, really hard for the children of Israel. Israel to make the bricks because they were forced to do it of finding this stubble on their own. And now we're like, oh, there's a play on words in this song. They're consumed like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? 
Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Not only do we remember who God is, right? We also remember, celebrate, and tell what God has done. Both in God's story and in our lives in a personal kind of way. That we remember, we celebrate, and tell what God has done. A couple weeks ago, um, Dave Nichols talked about telling our story. That part of our job is to tell our story. But here's a really important thing to remember. Our story is not our story. It is God's story. And so many people don't share their story because they believe that that isn't humble to share their story. And I want to encourage you, not trying to hurt your feelings, that's called pride. We, we cloak that as humility, but it's pride that keeps us from telling that story. I'm not saying talk about yourself. I'm saying talk about what God has done. Your story is about what God has done in your life, what God is doing in your life, what God has done in the past, and what God is doing now. That's a story worth telling. And I don't do it. I don't do that. Who wants to hear that? <laughs> Who wants to hear what God's doing in somebody's life, right? I, that's the way I think. Who wants to hear my story? Who am I that people would want to hear my story? People are like, we want to hear your story. And I think, yeah, you just hear my story. And you're like, well, yeah, okay. You're the guy who just appears. You're, you're the guy that, that we see at Costco and we don't think is a real human being. Then my kid's like, hey, dad, isn't that Dave Grun? He, he shops at Costco. I love Costco. The chances that I'm shopping at Costco every week is, is 100%. I look forward to that, okay? I'm a, real, I'm a real boy. I've said that before. I'm a real human being. But I still think people don't care. People don't care about that. People care. I have to remind myself. And if I have to remind myself that people care, you have to remind yourself that people care. And so as I look to last year, and, and I was thinking about this last night. I didn't tell this last night. As I think about going through a revelation, and, and God did something in my life through the book of Revelation. And at the same time that God was doing something, my life wasn't like all of a sudden, um, it's not black and white. It's not like my life was bad and got good. There was something that God did in, in bringing a passion for his word. In case you thought it was passionate before, it took it to the next level. And then it took it from kind of like, what do I do with this book of Revelation? I'm kind of insecure about it. To like, if you're using the book of Revelation to scare people, stop it. Stop it. It's not intended for that. Why? It's a hope-filled book about what God's going to do in the future. And if you're scaring people with it, you're abusing scripture. My, my, my level has gone to the next level. If you're connecting it to current events and going, ooh, the, the, the devil's going to get you, stop it. Why? There's so much that it's connected to, to the entirety of God's story. It's better than that. And it ignited a passion for the exodus of all books. Isn't this just a history book? No, it's a dynamic story of what God has done through history, through the supernatural God of the Bible in order to demonstrate who he is, not just to the children of Israel, to us as well. 
So here we are in this song. It's more about what God has done in the past. It's also about picking up here in verse 13 what God is going to do. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. He's purchased them. He's bought them. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they trembled. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary Sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. That song, a portion of this song is filled with stuff that's going to happen as the children of Israel go through the wilderness, 40 years in the wilderness, and they cross over into the promised land, eventually, okay, eventually establishing, hundreds of years later, establishing a temple on uh, the Mount, uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This is what this is pointing towards. This isn't talking about what's going to happen in our next series at Sinai. It's looking way beyond that. Pointing us towards the, the future and knowing that God's plans are going to be fulfilled. And this, this is something that's really important for us as well. That remembering, celebrating, and telling what God has done in the past, it sets us up to do what? To look forward to what God will do in the future. As we went through Revelation, if, if you think back of where we were, we, we talked about doing something that's really impossible to do, and that is to live with one, one eye on forever and one eye on today. Not to, it's a, not a choice between the two. Okay, we just don't look, live for the forever and we just don't live for the today. We live for both. If we're followers of Christ with a biblical worldview, we have one eye on forever, and that's not the day we die Okay, it's the day that we become a new creation resurrected in Christ. It's resurrection day that's way off in the future, the day that we don't know exactly when it's gonna be, when Christ returns and he raises all of those who have placed their trust or faith in God, both Old Testament, New Testament believers, as we become a resurrected people with a resurrected Jesus on a resurrected earth. And if you've never heard that before, go back and watch our series from last December. That's our hope. That's what we're living for. That's called the Christian hope. And, and that's one eye. We're supposed to live with our eye on that. And this story builds our faith saying God's purposes will be fulfilled. The rest of the Bible builds our faith that God's purposes will be revealed. And then one eye on today. And we go, oh, it's not just about what God's going to do in the future. He's also a God of power today. Tomorrow, when you wake up, he is a God of power on Mondays. Even when you wake up with dread of hopping in your car and driving to work or school, and you're going, oh, here we go again. He's a God of power right then. And we have to remember. How do we remember? We live it out. 
We open up that daily discipleship God, that daily worship God, and we remember, so as when we walk in the door, school, work, wherever we're walking in the door, and we're going, okay, there's opportunity today for me to demonstrate who God is, the kingdom of God, today in my world. So then something really cool happens uh, in verses 19 through 21. Uh, Miriam, it says the prophetess, Miriam, grabs a tambourine, says she's the sister of Aaron, makes her also the sister of Moses, takes a tambourine, all the women go out, and they sing the same song. Now, Miriam, it just gives the opening line of that song, but the, the implication of that is she goes out and she leads the people in this same song, and it calls her a prophetess, and the last half of this song is about what's going to happen in the future with God's plan. Then, picking up in verse 22, it says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days. Circle three days. Test is coming. In three days in the wilderness and found no water when they came to uh, Marah. That word means bitter. And so I'm going to read it the way that, that was going to help you. When they came to bitter, they could not drink the water of bitter because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named bitter. It means something. The biblical text means something. We're supposed to know that not that its name was Mara. No, it was bitter. So we called it bitter because the water was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses. And then we're like, oh, those Israelites are always grumbling. Yeah, you would too. Go three days without something to drink. See how you're doing. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. It's a tree. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. The water becomes healed. The water was undrinkable, and it becomes drinkable. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes... And give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. During our remembering and celebrating, okay, here comes the test. We remember and celebrate because the test is coming. Because we can quickly forget God's supernatural provision and presence. It's who we are. It's how we're wired. We can quickly forget. It's called being human. If we're not remembering, we will forget. If we're not intentionally remembering and celebrating, we will forget. We can forget when life is hard when life is busy, when life is good, when life is neutral, we can forget in any circumstance of life. We can forget if we're not intentionally remembering. And then when the test comes, we cry out and go, oh God, why and how and what did you do? And we start to, to be the accuser against God. How could you possibly have let me down? Because we didn't do the homework to know, hey, it's not about that. The test is coming. And how do I follow Jesus in the test? Because I remember and I celebrate and I know who he is. And it's not just about him doing good things about, for me right now. And then if you come out of a faith tradition that, where they, um, they teach um, word of faith kind of stuff, they take this in verse 26 totally out of context, and abuse it by telling you that God wants to heal you of every disease because he's called your healer. 
You want to see the condition for that? That they forget to tell you? If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes. Anybody want to sign up for that? That's the old deal. That's the old covenant that that we had to live out by our effort to, to demonstrate our covenant loyalty to the God of the Bible, which as new covenant believers, Jesus has done for us. That we trust that Jesus has lived out that covenant into perfection because we never could. And so whether or not I get healed of cancer or don't get healed of cancer, God's still my God. I'm still faithful. I'm still following Jesus. It doesn't mean that because in the Old Testament that, that God made a deal with the children of Israel that he would heal them of all their diseases, that, that he is your God and he's going to do the same. Okay? Don't do that. And don't allow people to do that. that. That really what's being said here is that come on, trust me. And just as he healed the water, like if you follow me, trust my supernatural presence and provision. And then comes verse 27, and most Bible scholars skip right over this bad boy because they don't know what to do with it. It seems kind of bizarre. And when, when something seems bizarre, pay attention. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water, circle 12, and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. In your margin, write 12 and 70. Now, way back when we started our first series in Exodus, as we started at the very beginning, if you look back in your journal or in your Bible, uh, we had you write in the margin 12 and 70. In your margin now, write 12 equals Israel, write 70 equals the nations. Way back in Genesis chapter 10, there's something called the table of nations. That that in the table of nations, there are 70 nations. They represent all the people of the world. And so here in this story, when it comes to something bizarre, like 12 and 70, you should be paying attention. The Bible author gets to use creativity. God's the master of creativity. And so does this mean there's a literal 12 springs and a literal 70 palm trees at an oasis and this is where they went and God just provided for them and then they moved on? I, I don't know if there's a literal 12 or a literal 70. I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. I don't care. It's so much better than that. It's so much better than whether or not there were actually 12 springs and actually 70 palm trees. If somebody's arguing that, I'm going to say, you missed the point. And it wasn't just God put them on a nice little oasis and then they got rejuvenated and then they moved on. No, he's pointing towards the cosmic abode. When it talks about God bringing them into the abode and his sanctuary, this is where heaven and earth collide. This is Eden. This is, this is the mountain. This is, this is into God's presence. This is pointing to a forever kind of thing. Now, did did they get to go to an an oasis? Yeah, but the picture that the Bible author wants you to know is God's story is going to happen. We look forward to God's completion of blessing of the nations. That was what he promised way back in Genesis chapter 12 as the mission of God began, and it's what we're still part of today, that we would be proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to the nations. 
all right there in this cool little verse that means nothing to anybody. But if you're paying attention and you're studying the word, you go, oh, there's something significant that has happened here. Now, we're just going to stop here, okay? That's, that's me just talking about the super cool stuff. And, and we're going to make a hard transition to talking about music. Music is powerful. Music is important. You cannot read God's story and not recognize that music is important. When it comes to professional musicians serving God, like people paying musicians to serve God, that is an Old Testament idea. They had professional musicians to lead and worship in the temple. God's, God's instruction. It's not our thing. It's God's thing. Um, the Bible is full of lyrics. We don't have the tunes anymore, but we have all the lyrics of all kinds of songs. We have a whole group of songs that are collected actually in five hymnals or five song books. We call them psalms. Songs are really important. Poetry in scripture is really important because it does something to us. I was thinking about this yesterday when I was driving here. I was thinking about what are all the times in my life when, when um, there's songs that I can connect to an event. There's songs that I'm going, oh, okay, there's, there's some kind of emotion that comes up right there. And there's, there's one for all of us. If, if we're at an event and, and they play the national anthem, if, like, if it has some kind of emotional effect on us, like we stand up and we, we stand still, hopefully, and, and we maybe place a hand over our heart and, and it, it moves us in some way, shape, or form as, as we reflect on our heritage of who we are, the people group as Americans that we're a part of, it moves us. Songs are powerful that way. And all of a sudden, I was teleported in time, which doesn't happen often to me, back to a barracks in Quantico, Virginia in 1991, laying on the top bunk in a big room of bunk beds with a bunch of other people laying in a bed at attention, singing a song. At the top of our lungs, we're singing something called the Marine Corps hymn. At the top of our lungs. Last night, I had somebody come up afterwards, and, and her dad had been a Marine, and, and uh, he loved the fact that he had been a Marine, and whenever I would see him, he'd, he'd always talk about Marine stuff, and um, she still remembered the lyrics of the song. I'm like, you know what? I don't know the last time that I've actually sung that song, but those lyrics are still right there. Yep. At least the first verse. Second verse, I ain't got that. But, but the first verse, I got that. Why? There's something powerful that happens. And I've talked about my wife that she uses music to teach math and she doesn't listen to music. She, she listens. She prefers talk radio because it's hard for her to understand lyrics. But when she understands lyrics, they're powerful in helping us remember. And so Two Rivers, I want to talk about the power of music and in celebration. It's not just the pre-event before the event. And then, and then when this part is done, then we move on. And so I'm going to use a silly illustration, but I want to because I haven't talked about the Cubs for a long time. And the reason I haven't talked about the Cubs for a long time is because I went through a couple years of drought along the way. You know, they won the World Series. I was hanging in there. They had all my guys. They were my guys. They sold them all. I mean, players, players that I saw play out, out in, in, in Sevierville, 
Before they were a thing, guys who were coming up through the system and me talking to Todd Michelson being like, Todd, Wilson Contreras, man, he's going to be the deal. Javier Baez, he's going to, like, he's amazing. He's going to be the deal, Todd. And they won the World Series and then they sold them all. And so I'm like, man, I cannot take this. I cannot go on this emotional journey. And so then Todd's like, hey, um, have you been paying attention to the Cubs? I'm like, no, I'm over that. I'm not doing that. I'm over that. Don't you know the Braves are the best team in baseball? They're killing everybody. Little shout out to the Braves saying, yep, yep, yep. I just hope they don't screw it up and lose the World Series because that's going to be tragic. But he pulled me in and I watched a couple games and it sucked me back in. They're fun to watch. And for a little, a little bit there before they started this massive losing streak that they're on right now, they were amazing to watch. And when, when you go to a Cubs game, when you go to Wrigley Field, it's one of these old school places. And if you've never been there, that you can't describe what happens when the Cubs win. I believe it's the coolest thing that happens in sports. Because there's one thing that you never, ever do if you go to a Cubs game. And, and if they're getting blown out by a bazillion, you might leave early. But if it's even close, if it's even a little bit close, you never, ever leave early early. Why? You got to sing the song. That's what you got to do. And you got to wave the flag. You got to do it. Why? I'm telling you what, like we needed to crank that thing and start jumping around and high-fiving each other because that's what happens at a Cubs game. I had Tim Bubar this week. We were talking about Go Cubs Go. He's a, he's a Cubs fan too. His parents, Joe and Charlotte, they, they're over in Blend right now. Uh, <laughs> yep, Charlotte, I'm going to talk about you. Um, yeah, he's telling the story. He's like, you'll never believe it. I saw my mom at a Cubs game. They came back and won. And my mom, he was blown away. My mom was turning around and high-fiving strangers, <laughs> singing the song. It just gets you going. You never leave early. So I want to encourage you, as we come together and celebrate the good news of the kingdom of God, the closing song isn't just the period and then move on song. And I'm not going to say that you need to work up the same kind of emotion. I don't like when, when preachers go like, hey, if you can go to Neyland Stadium or Neyland, sorry, Neyland Stadium and, and you know, sing Rocky Top, you should, you know, whatever. Not, not to make it fake, but there's a genuineness to, wow, this, this song isn't just the period on the end and I'm, I'm on. I'm, I'm going to move on. God moves in our lives in a powerful way. And so this, this weekend, I want to encourage you that, that we would be intentional about celebrating God's salvation and worship so we don't forget. And that means we always have a choice. And if you're a student, if you have a student, if you're a grandparent of a student, one of those opportunities that your student has to worship is fall camp. This weekend is the end of sign up for fall camp. Why wouldn't you go to fall camp? Why wouldn't you put yourself in the way of God to have a worship experience with other students that could be transformative? Why wouldn't you do that? Quiet waters. Why wouldn't you put yourself the first weekend of, of November, why don't you put yourself in God's way for 24 hours with God's people in order that, that you could remember, celebrate, and tell God's story? 
weekly worship as you look at, and you're here, all right? You get, you get, you get points for being here, but as you look at, hey, over the next six weeks, in this next six weeks series, could we as a family commit? I'm not asking you to commit to 52 weeks out of the year, but if we're not on vacation, we're going to be there. We're going to commit to six weeks. In this next series, we are not going to miss for six weeks. We're going to be committed. Why? It's not about just what I'm going to learn along the way. It's about remembering and celebrating and telling God's story. What we're going to do right now is, is um, we're going to ask God a question. And this week, I'm going to encourage you, live it out. Okay, I, I, I'm excited about the Live It Out this week. I think it's the best Live It Out. This is really dangerous to say. I think it's the best Live It Out we've done, but it's going to require more of an investment from you. Not in time, but in intentional focus. If you're not setting apart time where you can actually focus in, you need to set apart time this week because it's going to integrate the word and worship together and, and take you on a journey. And, and I'm praying, we're praying that you would encounter God in a new way in worship in a personal kind of way this week through the Live It Out. But right now, we're going to ask God this question. Where are you calling me to a greater level of worship? Maybe you have a talent. Maybe you sing. Maybe you play an instrument. And, and you're like, I, I, I need to dust that off. And I need to engage. We need people as part of our worship teams. I know you walk into a venue and you think that's not true. We definitely need people who, who are, have musical ability to lead in worship. But, but maybe on a personal level, you're like, I don't have that. What's the greater level of worship that God's calling you to? And so I'm going to pray. And we're going to ask God this question. Where are you calling me to a greater level of worship? In, in some area of my life, where are you calling me to worship, remember, to celebrate who you are at a whole new place? Father, would you, in this moment, would you speak to our hearts and minds? Would you call us to something greater in our worship? In Jesus' name, amen.